0: Welcome to this webinar series, Physical Activity Researcher podcast and International Society for Physical Activity and Health, ISPA, have started a race. We have edited their webinars to audio-only podcast versions, so you can listen to them also on the go. Our mission is to advance science and share scientific knowledge, so if your organization as relevant webinars or lectures and would like to get more audience to them please let us know but without further ado let's jump to the webinar i would like to uh, move to the next sec- session and i'm very very pleased to introduce our first uh, keynote speaker for today uh, Dr. Becca Wilson from uh, Liverpool University. Becca is an interdisciplinary researcher with a career spanning across an uh, impressive range of disciplines, ranging from space, atmospheric and health uh, sciences. Uh, she's currently the director of DataShield, succeeding from Paul uh, Burton, I believe, Uh, and an innovation fellow at the University of Liverpool. uh, uh, And Becca's research focuses on the development of open source software for the sharing access and visualization of sensitive health data. Very, very relevant to uh, the work we do at PROPASS. Becca is an advocate of open research and through her fellowship of the UK Software Sustainability Institute and her membership of the R uh, Forwards Task Force in R Software Foundation. She holds a strong commitment to diversifying the public perception of scientists, to smash science stereotypes and normalize disability. And uh, she's uh, carrying an impressive distinction in this uh, field. In 2020, Becca was named the Show Trust Disability Power 100 list as one of the 100 most influential disabled people in uh, Britain. Uh, Welcome uh, Becca, it's a great pleasure To have you here, it's a great pleasure to have you as a collaborator, you and DataShield. The floor is yours.
1: Thank you for inviting me, first of all, uh, to give an introduction to the DataShield analytic platform um, that I'm sure some of you will become familiar with over the next few years within the ProPass consortium. Um, So just a quick overview of my talk. I'm going to start with some introductions to the team, um, outline the domain and research challenges around data sharing, Uh, take a look at the DataShield platform as a solution, uh, look at how it works and explore some of the the range of functionality and kind of uh, use cases around who's using DataShield at the moment. So as we aren't able to meet in person, I thought I'd give um, just a brief, at least a a look-see at who is in the team. Um, And this was actually one of the last photographs uh, we took of the team just before the uh, pandemic started here in the UK. Um, So we are an interdisciplinary team. We span a huge range of skills and expertise across research, software engineering, data engineering, computing infrastructure, statistical methodology, epidemiology, social science, data governance and data ethics. Um, And so, and much like the data Shield software, we are also a distributed team, uh, geographically speaking. Uh, We're distributed across two different countries. So um, Dimitri's in Cyprus and the rest of the team is across three different cities in the UK. Um, Until this year, um, as um, was giving the introduction, until this this year, Professor Paul Burton was the uh, PI of Data Shield. And since then, here's me, um, I've now taken over this role. Um, And I guess just broadly speaking, research interests in the team are quite common. Um, We all have um, an interest in developing methodologies, tools, and processes for the sharing and access to sensitive data. Um, We also hold interest in data visualization, making things a lot easier to um, understand information within the data, and also um, we're big advocates for open research and open software. So now that we've introduced ourselves, uh, I'm gonna set the scene. Uh, So we're probably all quite aware of the challenges that exist um, related to the physical sharing and access to data in in research generally. Um, The one we're probably most familiar with is that um, data sharing challenges arise from ethical, legal or um, study governance restrictions. So this can include when data protection legislation requires that safeguarding um, or safeguards are in place to prevent disclosure or re-identification of individuals uh, within that data set. And that's when the data is processed, as well as when it's used and disseminated. Um, Separate to that, organisations or studies that generate data, they may have restrictions themselves um, around how the data can be used. Um, Perhaps this is related to how the data is stored. Um, And we do know of instances where Um, software licenses that have been used during data generation actually prohibit the sharing of the data to third parties. Another legal restriction can be around um, participant consent that was gained when the study um, was created. Um, And that's a common clause, uh, certainly for older, for example, cohort studies, is that there's restricted or you're not allowed to share the data with third-party organisations, in particular non-research organisations. The second data sharing challenge stems from intellectual property concerns and often a huge amount of investment in terms of cost and time has been spent to generate and curate data sets um, for research. And often organizations, you know, rightly so, they want to protect their investment. They want to protect their intellectual property they have within the data, and not just give the um give away any of the credit and the impact and the scientific kudos for for, for making some great, fantastic science discovery based on their data. And this is actually a particular concern, for example, in developing countries that have these rarer data sets and have much more um, constraints on their financial investments in scientific research finally also the data itself could potentially be commercially sensitive and this can arise if you're working with industrial partners Um, they may hold intellectual property in the data that's generated or the data itself could be sensitive for example land contamination data may be sensitive because it will affect potentially where um, houses can be purchased or house prices uh, it can affect house prices as well And finally, something that's become more increasingly relevant um, over the last 10 years is the physical size of the data um, can be prohibitive to physically sharing it. Um, You know, sort of 10, 15 years ago, we would give out data on hard drives uh, to researchers. Um, But now, you know, realistically, what's the feasibility of giving out copies of data that are tens of terabytes in size of of omics data to, to researchers like that? Now, cross-cutting these general research data sharing challenges that I showed on the previous slide, there are ones that are domain specific to epidemiology and health research. So, first of all, our analyses must have enough statistical power for us to draw accurate conclusions about a population based on our subset, our sample or our cohort study. and it's important, this is important if our research is going to inform patient care, therapeutics, patient experience, and health policy. And as such, we're a data-hungry domain. We require data from lots of different individuals to achieve this statistical power. And usually these data aren't held by one organisation unless it's a national archive, for example. Um, sometimes we solve this by creating um, research uh, networks So multi-organisation collaborations, either nationally or internationally. And we agree amongst ourselves that we are going to share data um, within the network or share data access within the network. But this does bring its own challenges in that we've got to satisfy not just the data protection legislation in one location, but we need to satisfy these conditions across the entire network. And the same is for any data governance restrictions or concerns and also consent for data use. So there needs to be commonality across those in the network. And when you look at um, just in Europe, the example is GDPR. Um, Across EU countries, there's a huge spectrum of interpretation of that one common piece of legislation across all countries. With some countries such as Germany and the Scandinavian countries that take a much more conservative view, of that legislation than others in terms of whether or not a specific data processing operation is GDPR compliant or not. And so, um, ultimately, our biggest challenge uh, in the domain is time. Um, Solving all of these challenges takes time, and it can take, you know, one plus years to establish all the contracts and the data sharing agreements within a consortium. And when you add into this the difficulties of working in a research environment where our funding is on short term cycles of the order of a couple of years. And therefore, again, staff that are trained in the skills to, um, uh, in the expertise to do all these sorts of tasks are also reliant on that, those uh, contracts that are a few years in length. And so what we need to do is come up with um, a much more time efficient data sharing and access method or methods that are flexible enough to satisfy this spectrum of legislative and governance restrictions uh, with respect to data sharing that is suitable for modern collaborative um, research network. And so DataShield is an analytic platform that can provide a solution to these challenges by allowing us to take our analysis to the data instead of physically moving the data and sharing the data to the analysts. Um, This analytic platform has been co-built by the DataShield team based in the UK, and also the Abiba team based in Canada, and I know that Isabel, I think, is on the programme to give a talk uh, at some point during this conference. So DataShield was conceptualised in 2009, um, and the first software was published and was being used by 2013. and we've adopted a co-design ethos from the beginning uh, in terms of building this software, because basically we value this huge range. We've always valued this huge range of health data stakeholder perspectives that have influenced the development of Data Shield. And this includes not just perspectives from researchers, from studies and from participants, but the public themselves. And in fact, we've even run um, stakeholder engagement exercises in kind of very public spaces such as shopping centres to gather the broadest possible perspectives on data sharing for health research and in this way I guess um, I always say the data shield is built by the biomedical research community for the biomedical research community and yeah since the beginning there's always been this very strong ethical legal and data governance research strand throughout the project Um, And this is currently focusing on mapping DataShield disclosure control mechanisms to compliance with um, data protection legislations, including GDPR. So how does DataShield work? I'm going to try and do this um, simply and not overly technically. Um, So DataShield is what we call a federated analysis platform. And basically it operates in a structure that's a bit like a hub and spoke structure. And this is akin to research consortia, I guess, um, where there's one central coordinating institute and then you've got your partner institutes. And so this is very similar. In DataShield, you've got this hub in the center that coordinates the analysis within the whole system. And this hub is the primary point that interfaces with analysts who are using the data and the study sites who host the data. So we're gonna take a look at basically an example hub and spoke, I'll start with the hub. So the blue parts represent the hub um, and we call this the data shield client. And this sits outside of your studies or your organization's firewall, um, and it, which is represented by this dashed line. Now only authorized or pre-approved analysts can um, connect to this hub. And what they do is they use the R analytical environment. Um, to run their analysis or to to initiate their analyses. And what they'll be using is special data shield functions that are in our data shield libraries. The gray part represents, um, I guess, the spoke part of my hub and spoke infrastructure. And we call this the data shield server. And this is the analysis environment. This is where analysis actually occurs on individual patient data. And it's only functions that are approved by the data shield server. All the spoke components sit behind the organization's firewall, and you have full control of this environment, um, including who has access to it. So the Data Shield server, as I said, contains the individual patient data itself, or it can have a direct connection to elsewhere in your organization um, wherever that data may sit. Uh, this is common for um, very large data sets like Omics data or image data that have to be stored in specific um, computer storage uh, facilities. DataShield has also been built with maximum flexibility and future-proofing, and we've actually uh, got the capability to connect and make use of tools that sit outside of R, um, for example, machine learning or um, AI algorithms or other programming languages like Python or Julia for data science. Uh, And so one example is that recently the DS-OMICS package, which has been designed to analyze OMICS data, makes use of Plink. And Plink is not native to R, it sits outside of R, but we can make use of it within the DataShield analysis environment and safely send um, the outputs back. So within this system, um, DataShield uses um, quite a wide variety of methods in order to preserve data security and also data privacy and confidentiality. In fact, it operates active disclosure checks in real time during the analysis and also on outputs of the analysis. And so I'm just going to go through um, some examples of these. So during an analysis, an analyst can't just type any function they want and request this to be run um, on the individual patient data. It's only approved functions with approved arguments that can be run. So um, and these are these functions have been approved by the data controller or the data custodian as well. So you can't just in an argument of, of one of these functions, you can't just run a subroutine that prints all the data to screen or anything like that. And the results returned back to the analyst are only ever non-disclosive um, uh, information. And anything that breaches the disclosure is actually blocked from the server from being returned back to the client or the analyst. And this includes during iterative analyses like um, some forms of modeling, like generalized linear modeling, or if you're using machine learning modeling where you have to run um, the model iteratively until convergence, this this all holds true in that situation as well. So built into every single data shot function are disclosure checks on the outputs with thresholds that can be set by the study. Uh, in agreement, we would suggest with the consortiums that everyone's using um, a consistent configuration. So an example of this could be the minimum subset threshold in the, as an analyst, you allow analysts to subset the data up until they have a minimum of three uh, participants within that data subset. And this is to prevent you from subsetting down to one individual participant which would then obviously be disclosive. So there's also um, checks on things like uh, model parameters to prevent overfitting of models and maximum string lengths which maximum text lengths that could be used in function arguments and also a minimum cell size for data tables. For things like when you're returning counts or frequencies in tables, again, there has to be a minimum number of participants to calculate that cell's cell cell. So the data controller actually has the ability not only to control the configuration of what the um, parameters of these disclosure checks actually are, the limits, the minimum limits of them are, but they actually are able to also select and remove and allow access to individual functions and libraries for people um, that are running analysis on their data. Now, all of this sort of disclosure checks and these controls are available every single spoke in your network, every single data provided in the network. Um, And once the the non-disclosive outputs are returned to the analyst, they're actually able to use those data because they're not disclosive. um, They're able to use them with any sort of software they want to make beautiful graphs and tables for their publications. So by its very nature, DataShield allows us um, to basically uh, analyse data in the typical meta-analytic setting. And also, instead of data being pulled in one location, um, you know we have a setting where all the studies hold uh, the same variables, but on different um, individuals. And so it allows us to get the statistical power that we need for analysis. It also means that um, we can analyse data at study level, uh, but also at an individual patient data meta-analysis. So that effect of being, the equivalent of being completely pooled, all in one place, but without physically sharing the data. Furthermore, because no data is ever ever physically shared either in the network or to the client or the analyst, and the analyst cannot copy, view or print any information, uh, any individual information, more often than not, data shield is applicable in the most strictest interpretations of data protection legislation and data sharing challenges that I outlined in my earlier slides. Um, so I wanted to just compare um, this data show method to other commonly used methods uh, in the domain. And I've picked sort of three infrastructures that are usually used um, as a way to get around some of these um, uh, data sharing restrictions. The first is uh, the use of data safe havens, uh, or in the UK, we call them trusted research environments. And this is where... Um, Typically, a study will deposit their data into an infrastructure that is usually hosted by a third party um, that's um, secure and uh, users will have to log in um, to be able to access and analyze data in that environment. And you can't take any data out of it unless it's pre-approved. The second infrastructure is a federated data network. Uh, which is basically where studies keep their own data in their own systems under their own control, and you usually have a, a study statistician that runs the analysis on behalf um, of researchers within your own study, and then there's data shield. So um, first up, in terms of infrastructure, so um, obviously it, uh, with data safe havens, your data is required to be deposited outside your organisation usually. Um, There is normally a cost with this sort of infrastructure in the the UK, for example, an annual license for one of these safe havens can cost tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of pounds a year, depending on the size of your data and the features you need. The critical thing is that studies or organisations use different um, safe havens, which have different um, infrastructures, and they're not necessarily easy to connect, not natively at least. In a federated data network, um, yeah, the data sits with your organization and your native infrastructure, um, but isn't necessarily uh, connectable to other people's uh, other studies data. With DataShield, everyone's using the same infrastructure that is open source and free to use. And it means that um, if you are using Data Shield or if you are hosting data in DataShield, it means that your study is interoperable and connectable to other studies that are also using DataShield, uh, as long as the data is harmonized. If we look at how you know, disclosure checks are done to ensure that confidential information isn't removed from the environment, um, usually in a safe haven environment, um, you know, usually a statistician uh, will manually check the analysis output before allowing a researcher to export these from the environment in terms of federated data networks, usually a study statistician will um, check the script that is to be run for disclosure, they will run the analysis on behalf of the researcher, and um, they will check the outputs again manually before returning the results to the, the analyst or the researcher. In Data Shield, um, we actually use automated disclosure checks in real time during the analysis, um, and also on the outputs. In terms of Uh, data privacy and handling, ability to handle sensitive data. Um, Within a safe haven environment, researchers are able to view all the individual patient data. Um, And, you know, they do actually have, whilst they cannot remove information from outside the system as in export it freely, they can actually potentially take screenshots of it and copy it. And so it makes this sort of uh, access model potentially unsuitable for sensitive data. And certainly it becomes difficult if if you are in industry research collaborations um, or there may be um, industry or SME use of your data. It makes it very difficult potentially to give those access to your data. Um, It also relies on uh, legal contracts or data sharing contracts with the researchers and trust of those researchers uh, to ensure that the data is not misused and that bad actors are sanctioned. Well, one has to always question as a data controller how would you ever know that data has been misused uh, and this is the most actually this mechanism is the most common way that data in the uk is actually uh, um, accessed for primary and secondary care data it will be pseudonymized um, but this is how electronic health records are basically accessed in the uk for research in federated networks um, and also within data shield because uh, the researcher doesn't either have access to the individual data or they cannot view it or copy it. Um, these are potentially methods that are much more suitable for uh, sensitive data and also do give you the option to give access by industry. Um, and finally in terms of the analyst's experience, um, I guess uh, in TREs the biggest impact on the analyst whilst they are allowed to conduct the um, research themselves in a the data safe haven there will be delays in waiting for a statistician to check for those manual checks to check those outputs um, for those to be given back. In a federated data network, there's possibly slightly longer delays um, in that you have to wait for the statistician to run your script, and then you again wait for them to return the answer manually. Within both of these, if you want to analyze data across say 40 co- or 40 different um, uh, data organization, organizations that hold data, you're going to have to repeat this process 40 times. With a safe haven, you're going to have to have 40 different logons because they're going to be using 40 different environments. And with the federated data network, you're going to have to liaise with 40 different study statisticians in order to get your analysis done. And it, in this environment, it makes it very difficult if you decide you want to change the uh, perhaps use a different um, statistical statistical technique or different model. You have to update your script and wait for it all to be run again. In comparison, in Data Shield researchers conduct their own analysis, it's in real time, and it's federated across all the sites at the same time. So it allows you to do either a study level analysis or individual patient analysis as if the data was pulled in one place when it hasn't been shared. And so it really demonstrates a much more modern way of working in, within collaborative research networks. My last few slides, I'm just going to talk about um, some of the functionality and the range of functionality available in DataShield. Um, So the data shield team, we've built the base data shield functions. Now, if you're an R user, um, I guess this would be the equivalent of R base. We've called it DS base. Um, And that's around 140 functions that allows exploratory analysis, like frequency, means, counts, um, GLM, and things like that. Um, It's all the data shaping and reshaping functions, subsetting, creating categorical variables um, from continuous variables and things. And also graphical outputs. So your histograms, box plots, uh, box plots um, scatter plots, contour plots, and things like that. And we also maintain and develop the core disclosure checks that can be used in any of the data shield functions. Um, we've also written a library to help um, developers uh, develop their own data shield libraries. It's called the DS Danger package because as it says, it actually contains functions that make information disclosive. And when you're developing, you do kind of need um, to be able to work on synthetic data, but you need to be able to see whether or not uh, any disclosive information is coming out um, during development to check your functions actually working properly. Now, um, in green, are all the libraries that have been um, audited for, for disclosure. And they've been tested, uh, com- like for the co- code has been tested extensively, and they're all being used operationally with real world data. Uh, now, this base platform is, has been open for the past couple of years for other researchers and groups to build tools on top of it, because we are an open source community. Um, and basically, there's a large number of libraries uh, which are going to be in, uh, shown in orange that are, have been built, they're being used in real world, but they're currently undergoing the process of uh, testing. So there are various stages of the testing. These include um, data wrappers for R packages for exposome analysis, uh, functions to help analysts, uh, building survival and Cox models, omics analysis, uh, and deep learning and federated learning packages. Uh, the deep learning package is specifically tailored for synthetic data generation. In yellow, we have packages that have been, they're built and they're prototyped. They're not being used with real-world data yet, and they have not been tested yet, but they'll slowly move, they're moving in that direction. And these are packages that focus on um, sort of like methods that really uh, are used heavily in machine learning and also functionality for analyzing geospatial data. And finally in red, we have the packages that have um, just been started to be developed uh, and they obviously are not being used with real-world data and they haven't been tested. Uh, And these include wrappers for our our libraries um, for ecological analysis and synthetic data generation again. And then uh, there's someone working on a cluster analysis package as well. So um, hopefully I've shown this huge spectrum of um, functionality that is to come as well as what is currently available in DataShield. And over the past couple of years, we've had um, an increasing number of consortia using DataShield. And I just wanted to summarize on this slide the scale of these projects, many of whom are actually not only using DataShield, but are now also developing in DataShield the packages that I sh- or the functionality I showed you on the previous slide. Basically, once they start using DataShield, if there's not a function available, a lot of time researchers will say, right, we're just going to build our own our, our, our own package. And then they're helping to expand functionality available for all Data Shield users. So I come back to this phrase that I said earlier on in the talk, where Data Shield is built for the community by the community. Uh, and that's really true. So um, one of our key consortia is the mega um consortia of uh, the mega cohort consortia um, which is You Can Connect. And that's connecting over 170 cohort studies uh, predominantly across Europe. Uh, and the aim of this uh, consortia is to basically build a a fair uh, infrastructure um, for a data infrastructure, but also an analytic infrastructure as well. And this is being based on data shield. In athlete, this is another European funded project, which is developing the next generation exposome tools. And so they're leading on the development of omics and exposome analytical tools, uh, again, based on data shield. Miracom is another sort of like um, supersized project, uh, a national German project, uh, which started out using DataShield in eight research hospitals for federated analysis across the country. And they're now extending out to uh, they're aiming to, to have Data Shield running across all German research hospitals. Um, and the most recent one is Uncover, who are... Um, using DataShield across four continents to analyze COVID pandemic data from electronic health records. And their intention is actually to expand out to image data and omics data and to respiratory diseases generally. So I hope that my whistle-stop tour of DataShield has shown that the ProPass consortium is joining a really active uh, community Um, A top tip is for me is to get involved and engage in this community. And there's two really easy ways to do this. The first is to join the free DataShield forum. That's datashield.org forward slash forum. And here um, you can engage with the community of developers, deployers, analysts. Um, You can get support, ideas. um, You can post questions. You can search help topics as well. Um, And it's our primary news channel. So data shield updates, project news, new releases, and if there's security notices, um, these all appear in, in the forum. We're in the process of moving our conferences back towards hybrid or in-person settings. Um, and we have an annual conference that we rotate amongst different um, user groups uh, of data shield in order to help promote and build capacity in data shield in those regions. And um, we're also, we also host uh, well, so our next conference is going to be in September this year. Um, and we also host working group meetings, usually online. Uh, and our next one is coming up in May and will be based on helping us to write and determine project governance in DataShield to ensure that DataShield is sustainable long term and continues to meet the needs of the community. So I've now concluded my tour of the DataShield platform and shown how it can facilitate um, modern collaborative team science Uh, And I hope that I've demonstrated that yeah, you'll be joining uh, this very active research community. And certainly in DataShield, we look forward to hearing about the PROPASS outputs over the upcoming years. And I hope that we'll be able to see some of you at the annual DataShield conference as well. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Becca, that was truly excellent. Uh, I will start with uh, a comment, not, uh, not, uh, not a question. We have a few questions to go through. Uh, a very nice comment uh, uh, saying that uh, the talk is excellent. Uh, Becca makes uh, complex stuff uh, sound easy and simple. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would, in response to uh, your very last comments, uh, I, I should uh, uh, highlight that uh, your talk uh, uh, confirmed my conviction that you were the right people to approach. And I'm very, very glad that we made the decision, we initiated this collaboration. Uh, and I very much look forward to working together uh, so we have a few questions and I will start the one from uh, Andy Andy Atkin he's asking very practical questions he says what is the process for testing our packages when does a package specifically progress from orange to green
1: yeah so um, so obviously unlike a normal software package I guess with a normal software package in R you would just you just need to test I guess um, your typical sort of what we call integration and unit testing, checking, you know, is the answer correct? Does the function operate correctly? Is the code readable? Is there a manual? Is there a help file? So we need to do all those normal checks um, to prove that the function is actually working correctly. But the other checks we also need to do are um, audit of the disclosure controls. Because for us, fundamental to all data shell functions is that we, we you know, we are, it's privacy by design. We do not allow any um, individual patient information to be sent back to the client. So our testing um, is kind of a two-part process. Um, At the moment, we're sort of, it's almost a bit like peer review, I guess, (laughs) the way that we peer review each other's software, uh, papers, sorry, we peer review each other's software. And so, you know, there is now this growing number of users and um, we've got for, for the software side of things, so not the disclosure side of tests, We've got some, we're putting together at the moment, a testing framework, which it's drafted uh, and some people are using it, but really we need input from the community, from the other developers to finalize it, which is where we're at with it. But we we should be getting agreement on that. So then as a developer, you can at least write your own tests for that. And then we will check them um, and see whether or not um, the tests are valid, whether they're correct. Um, And that will be one way to move from, yeah, red or yellow, orange up to the green block. Um, But for the statistical audit, really to check disclosure control, a statistical audit of your functions needs to happen. And that can only be really done by a statistical methodologist who A, is familiar with DataShield and B, um, understands disclosure control as well. And so at the moment, there's a couple of people in the community that could provide that. Um, Obviously, if you're collaborating on a grant together, then their time is already funded. But if, you are, uh, if you're not collaborating together on a grant, then obviously there is a cost associated with that statistical audit. So I do think that if there are groups intending to build tools in DataShield, factor into your grants this cost for testing and for statistical audit. Because we are starting to now, um, on our website, make a list of the packages in the community that have been built and tested. So we're putting the test status publicly on the website um, as well.
0: Yeah, it's, so it's, it sounds, thank you. That, that's really, really useful information for us uh, in addition to answering uh, on this question. That's really, really useful information for us. So it sounds like the statistical audit expertise out there, they're few and far between. Uh, it's, there, is a, there is a kind of shortage. Sure, as if we're talking about a couple of people. Have you had any cases where uh, it was not possible. So a group uh, wanted to build a function and, and uh, progress their fu- that function to red, then you couldn't get hold of the statistical audit person to uh, finalize it, to, to finally approve it.
1: No, that's never happened. So so some some functions have been... Um, so I'd say the majority of people who are building functions are in the community, they're in the forum, they attend. We have a, a technical meeting every couple of weeks. So they'll attend those sorts of meetings and communities to get advice from the statisticians other statisticians basically on what approaches to use so it's very much a collaborative endeavor um, but then other groups particularly in germany they have their own statistical methodologists sitting in their teams so they actually do the um they develop those uh, disclosure control and check it themselves um, and so i think it depends on what sort of team you're building We always try to convert uh, people that are using DataShield to become developers, and particularly if you are a statistician by training, we're always interested in, you know, getting people to to be involved on the methodological side of things because, yeah, there's a shortage of that skill, it seems.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Very, very. Uh, can I ask you to provide a very quick answer to the very last question by mm-hmm. Cork, uh, Ing? Uh, what are the biggest challenges for using DataShield? and uh, does overcoming these challenges outweigh the benefits from using a Data Shield?
1: Yeah. So I guess um, I guess from a let's think from a deploy. So there's two answers from a deployer's point of view. I guess the challenge is that you're maintaining the system, so you need to have the technical staff. It's a very small amount of their time, like 0.1 FTE or something, uh, you know, a week or a month or something to maintain it once it's set up. Um, But you do have to have that in-house expertise, obviously. Um, In terms of the analysts, um, the analytical environment is R. So that's what the researcher will use is R commands, but they're obviously a special library of R commands. Um, So if you're not familiar with R, if you're using things like Stata or um, something else, obviously... The, I guess the biggest hurdle is learning R <laughs> um, and I think in terms of future challenges I guess what we're focusing on at the moment is really there's a big drive towards compatibility with machine machine learning models which requires us to operate functions in a different way to how um, other functions are actually running so we're trying to open up the platforms so that we can use different sorts of um, tools uh, and also tools outside of R.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, Becca. That was an excellent session, uh, and I would like to thank our audience. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research through podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in this show, we would really appreciate the rating on the Apple Podcasts or whichever
1: app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply
0: tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.